You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Our text today, we're going to be looking at the book um, that I don't think I've ever preached on this book. It's a smaller letter. It's 2 Peter. Okay, It's in the New Testament. And if you don't have a New Testament with you, um, we have a few available. Yes, Dick, go out. Yeah. Yeah. Your wife, your wife told you to move. You better move. Okay, anybody need a New Testament? We're going to be in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Okay? It's way in the back. It's a small uh, letter. It's on what page? Somebody got it in the New Testament? No? Okay. Now, on your Bible.com um, app, you will also notice you can go to live. And um, as you go to the live side of things, under the more tab, okay, let's see. Let me make sure I can do that myself. I'm not that tech savvy. But under Bible app, you go under more and then to live, and it should show up. Gifted for Godliness, Thrive Community Church. And so we have notes there along with the text itself. So that's one way to do it, okay, as well. Um, and if you need to know how to get to the version Bible.com, um, we'll talk to you after the service. But you can get notes then for the sermons and uh, learn a lot that way as well throughout the week. So let's read this, 2 Peter 1, 3 to 11. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate. We are awake now. Yeah, we're having fun. We uh, we're mixed things up a little, if you can't tell. We've got the soundboard in the back today trying it out. Bear with us. Okay. Where am I now? <laughs> okay. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <sighs> Long text, right? And probably have to give you a caveat up front. We're not going to get into If I preached on everything in this... The rains would sure be done today by the time I got done. So we're going to just try to focus on just a couple points to take home and kind of simmer on this week. So we said, you are gifted for godliness. That is, your life, my life, we have a direction. We have a goal. We have an aim. We have a target, you might even say. The question is, what is that? What's the aim? What's the purpose? What's the goal of your life? Um, now, when I was growing up in um, a church in Michigan, don't hold that against me, Michigan, um, but um, 
I don't recall ever really hearing much about a goal or purpose or aim for my life. It was more like you believe and then you wait until you get to heaven. And in between, well, um, good luck. <laughs> Hope it goes well. Be nice. Try to find a good way to live. Be a good citizen, something, one thing or another. But basically, there is uh, what's the aim or goal of life? Well, to get to heaven. Sound good? But then what do I do for the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years? Just wait till I get to heaven? Is this just God's waiting room and we're waiting around? It's kind of the big whatever. Is that what's going on? I don't, um, so that's kind of the question I have today. No wonder many people, when they made their decisions, at least in my childhood church and growing up, basically kind of just decided to, let's say, oh, I'm going to go with this career and that goal or that direction, and then I'm going to get this, and then I'm going to get that, and then go here, and then go there. And my question would be to you, then what? Is that all there is? Is that what it's all about? Um, it reminds me of a legend that happened in the old English countryside. I think this is just kind of a legend. Um, but that um, the people at the time were noticing there was someone like a William Tell around who could always, whenever an arrow was shot into the trees in the forest, hit the bullseye every time. Every time it was a bullseye. Every time that arrow was there, boom, center of the target. There's a William Tell out there again. And they were trying to figure out who it was until one day a couple of the peasants went around and found a 12-year-old kid with a bow and arrow in hand, and he'd shoot an arrow wherever it hit. He'd go by and paint the bullseye around the arrow. I get a feeling a lot of people in life have done that, that that's kind of what's going on in their lives. They shoot first, and wherever it lands, that's where they intended to go. But you, I think, were gifted for godliness. That's what this text says. He writes, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So the question really becomes, uh, what is godliness? Hmm? What is godliness? What is the target? What's that bullseye that we're shooting for? Now, I've heard a lot of preachers have talked on this. Godliness, you know, that person is godly. You need to live a godly life. But then I ask the question, what does it mean? And I don't get much of a response. And the problem I have with this word myself, I'm kind of confessing it myself right now, is um, the word reminds me of... I'm dating myself of a skit that I recall from Saturday Night Live with Dana Carvey, the church lady. Anybody ever see that skit, that church lady? Well, isn't that special? I know it's old and all, but in it, she came across, or 
the church lady came across as prim and proper and judgmental, etc. right? Always superior to everyone else, always criticizing. And you know what? This is what's funny or not so funny about it. Dana Carvey actually said that he figured out this character for Saturday Night Live from his own experience at his Lutheran church that he went to in North Carolina as a child. Ouch. It's a real life experience. Godliness, I guess, is next to cleanliness, which is next to judgmentalism or something like that. That's the way it goes. Last week, um, Phil and I went to a conference up in the Orlando area, and we got to hear a man named David Kinneman. He is in charge of Barna Research, which is a Christian research firm that does all sorts of surveys across the United States. And da David Kinneman wrote, out of the research that he did years ago, a book called Unchristian. And the title of the book, Unchristian, is not about those who are not Christian. No, that's the sad thing. The title of the book, Unchristian, was the criticism or the critique of people outside of the Christian church towards those who were Christian. They said, um, you're really now a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of the original. You're not even close anymore. Um, you come across as hypocritical, judgmental, homophobic, and too political. And how did they figure that out? It wasn't just the news media as so often, oh, the media gets it all wrong and they make us look bad, etc. The fact is 84% of those who are not Christian personally knew a Christian person or had experience with more people and they're basing their critique of Christianity on what they learned from people, real Christians. Ouch. Again, kind of like Dana Carvey. Ouch. It hurts. Is that what we mean by godliness? I hope not. Well, David Kinneman tried to figure out now, wait a minute, how is it, why is it, that 84% of people outside of the Christian church know Christian and they have these attitudes towards Christianity and who we are. And so what he did is he then uh, created a survey for Christians to respond, people who are going to church, getting involved. Um, and he made up uh, statements that were both um, self-righteous in their attitude and self-righteous in actions, as well as statements that were more like Jesus in his attitude and Jesus in his actions. And he gave the survey out and had people say, which one do they agree with strongly, etc. Here are some of the um, self-righteous attitudes. I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do the wrong things. It's not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves. I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws. I believe we should stand against those who oppose Christian values. People who follow God's rules are better than those who do not. Now you might go like, wait a minute. Oh, I, there's some truth to those statements. Some. You know, some truth. 
there's also an edge to those statements. Do you notice that? Some of the self-righteous actions were these. I tell others the most important thing in my life is following God's rules. I don't talk about my sins or struggles. That's between me and God. I try to avoid spending time with people who are openly gay or lesbian. I like to point out those who do not have the right theology or doctrine. I prefer to serve people who attend my church rather than those outside the church. Now, intermixed with statements like this were ones that were Christ-like in their attitudes. For instance, I see God-given value in every person, regardless of their past or present condition. I believe God is for everyone. I see God working in people's lives, even when they are not following him. It is more important to help people know God is for them than to make sure they know they are sinners. I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. And Christ-like actions where I listen to others to learn their story before telling them about my faith. In recent years, I have influenced multiple people to consider following Christ. I regularly choose to have meals with people with very different faith or morals than me. I try to discover the needs of non-Christians rather than waiting for them to come to me. I am personally spending time with non-believers to help them to follow Jesus. So those are the statements, those are the things that are going on that he had out. And after the survey was done of people who are Christians going to church, only 14% of those who were surveyed were actually displaying Christ-like attitudes and Christ-like actions. 51% had both pharisaical attitudes and pharisaical actions. So about one out of every seven or eight Christians attending church actually displayed Jesus to others versus the church lady to others. So when people talk about godliness, I think here's the problem. Which definition? The Pharisees probably looked very godly in the day of Jesus. And the people Jesus hung out with, I don't know how godly they actually look. As I was studying this text and others, I found out the Greek word actually for godliness is kind of an unusual word because you'd think God is in it, like theos, but instead it's the Greek word eusebeia. Eusebeia, which basically you means good and sebeia means homage or honor. And it's really not a word that's often used in the New Testament. It comes up in 1 Timothy, in 2 Timothy, in Titus, 2 Peter. And the references in the book of Acts are actually saying, oh, it's not my piety that did that. Jesus did it. It's kind of almost a thing that's off to the side. Eusebeia is not the center of the scriptures but at the same time, it's a good word because it's really about aim. It's about your focus. It's good honor, good reverence, good focus, good direction. It's a relational word that says, this is where I'm headed and this is what I'm about. But it all depends on actually where you're headed or what you're about. 
not itself. So you can be, um, you can honor the wrong thing. You can pay homage to the wrong thing. You can be reverent about the wrong ideas. It comes down to just like the bow and arrow, what are you aiming for, if anything at all? I think the passage that probably explains the way Paul and Peter and the New Testament uses this term best comes out in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Do you see what the mystery is or what godliness is? He, Jesus. Godliness becomes God-likeness. Jesus-likeness. That's our aim. There is a goal to your life and mine. We grow up into maturity into Jesus Christ. We become more like him in our attitudes and our actions and how we serve people, how we love them, how we have compassion for them, how we see God is for them and not against them. And even in the midst of their struggles and brokenness and sins and rebellion or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We are there to be for them and to share God's love and compassion for them and his truth for them, realizing we're no different than they are. To be like Jesus. If we're going to be anything at Thrive Community Church, if we're going to make any impact on the kingdom, somehow we're going to have to be that 14% that are more like Jesus than like the Pharisees. Somehow we're going to have to be thinking different than the norm of what's going on in our society. That we become so gospel-focused and so grace-saturated and so compassionate and merciful, adhering to the truth of who our God is and what our God is about on redemption, that Jesus can't help but get out through what we do and how we live. As Peter said in this text, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, knowing who Jesus is and what he is about, we can respond. Jesus gives you the divine power so that you actually partake in his nature, that he lives in you and then through you and displays his goodness to others. So like I said, there's not... Um, just a couple take-homes today, a couple questions to actually answer. And the first one, I think, in this text, and if we get this right, then everything else kind of flows, is this. Do I have even an aim for my life? Do I have an aim? Am I trying to go in any direction at all? Now, you might, uh, before you beat yourself up too much about this, because it's just kind of like, I understand, okay, I just want to get through this semester right now is all my aim is. 
I want to get to Thanksgiving. I want to get to next week, right? Realize all of us have failed on this. None of us comes to God by doing things right. I love how Richard Rohr said that. None of us comes to God by doing things right, but by doing them wrong. We've messed up. I've messed up. I've had that pharisaical, self-righteous attitude way too often toward others. I have come across in a way that is judgmental. That isn't just simply discerning. That is superior to. That has all the wrong things, and God forgives me for that. Jesus doesn't come from above looking down at us. Do you realize as we're approaching Christmas, God comes from below and lives into us. He places himself the lowest spot possible in a manger so that he doesn't look down on you. He lifts you up. He doesn't... um, Stand distant from you. He comes so close, no one can come closer. And Jesus takes our ungodliness, all the things that we'd say, no, thank you, God, I don't want, I don't need, I don't need you. He takes all our self-righteousness, which is ungodliness, and he becomes that for us upon the cross so that we become God-like. Loving, giving, serving. So do you have an aim for life? Do I have the right aim for my life? We're not focused on principles or rules or behavior. We are focused on a person. The target is not things, but a relationship with Jesus. And when we have that relationship with Jesus, it's not that we even approach him. He also approaches us and works with us and works in us and gives us so that we are a partaker of his divine nature, as it says in 2 Peter. He gives us the right aim and the right goals. And the third question, do I reflect Jesus or the Pharisee, is another way of saying, am I about rules or relationships? If it's about rules, I'm still in control trying to keep them. If it's about a relationship, Jesus is in control. I, I love, you know, there was a book way back when that said, God is my co-pilot. I don't remember who wrote it. But I say, if God is my co-pilot, I better switch seats. He needs to be the pilot. And I need to sit off to the side. He needs to be in control. And finally, I think the last goal is, is my godliness for me or for others? Now, that might be the hardest to realize, but this whole talk about Eusebea that Peter brings out here in this text, 
that Paul talks about to Timothy and to Titus. It's not really about you. It's not for you. It's not some like merit badge that you have. It's really the way that you are able to reflect him to others. It's really about how you serve others. It's about how you are there for others. And I pray to God that there is a renewal in the Christian church across this nation at this point in time when people are desperate for Jesus whether they realize it or not. When they are struggling to figure out what's up and what's down and what's going right and what's going wrong, when everybody seems to be searching for something and they don't even know what they're looking for, that we are able to just show Jesus so that it's not about what I've done or what I can do or who I am, but it's about him and he gets all the glory. That's the godliness that our lives are all about. Growing up to be more and more like Jesus. Let's pray.